From beach towels to tea towels, and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Oborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to your Global News Hour. You are seeing this news on Monday, December the 11th for the first time. And no doubt, if you check with your mainstream bulletins for the six o'clock news, you'll wonder why you waited so long to get the latest because you'll get it here first on TNT Radio. And on today's show, as Javier Malay is sworn into office in Argentina, Donald Trump takes a commanding lead in the polls against Joe Biden. The Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk has resigned after almost nine years in the job. The president of the University of Pennsylvania has also resigned after testifying in Congress last week over anti-Semitism and hate speech being used against students. Finland has declassified some of its JFK files and the misinformation war continues as the globalist establishment appeals for more collective will in our deep dive later in the show. But first today, Argentina's new president, Javier Malay, has vowed to lead his country out of decades of decadence and decline but said its punishing economic crisis would intensify over the coming months as a who's who of the global far right assembled in Buenos Aires to celebrate the radical libertarians inauguration, according to The Guardian. Addressing tens of thousands of supporters outside Argentina's turquoise-domed neoclassical congress, Malay, a mercurial former TV celebrity known as El Loco or the Madman, compared his shock election with the start of the Soviet Union's collapse. Just as the fall of the Berlin Wall marked the end of a tragic era for the world, these elections represent a tipping point in our history, he declared, promising to fight tooth and nail to drag his country into a new era of peace and prosperity. He warned, however, that Argentina, where annual inflation is expected to hit 200% this year and 40% of its citizens live in poverty, faced an emergency situation. The challenge before us is titanic. I'd rather tell you an uncomfortable truth than a comfortable lie, he said. Malay's speech had strong echoes of Donald Trump's 2017 inauguration speech in which the American tycoon vowed to end an age of American carnage, crime and poverty and return power to the people. Argentina has become a bloodbath, Malay said, vowing to fight the drug traffickers who had hijacked the streets of its biggest cities. In this report, some of it in Spanish, we begin with coverage of his inauguration. Sure. Javier Gerardo Milei, juro por Dios y por la patria, sobre estos santos evangelios, desempeñar con lealtad y patriotismo el cargo de presidente de la nación argentina y observar y hacer observar fielmente en lo que de mí depende la constitución de la nación argentina. Sí, juro. No va a ser fácil, 100 años de fracaso no se deshacen en un día, pero un día empieza y hoy es ese día. Javier Milei says he's like a lion with the strength to jumpstart Argentina's economy. We are advocates of freedom and that implies a clear alignment in terms of geopolitics and our geopolitics align with the United States and Israel. That's our international policy. We are not going to align ourselves with communists. Millet was born in 1970 and decided to study economics after seeing Argentina's constant financial troubles. 
He became known for his eccentric personality and a style. His strong media presence turned him into a favorite character among young people, and he was elected to Congress in 2021. Author Juan González wrote one of the first books on Javier Milei. Millet believes he can talk to his dead dog. He believes God destined him to be in politics and that his clone dogs are his children. I think he's had a rough life. He was beaten, had no friends. He's unstable, and I'm not sure he's the best person for an unstable country. Even though Millet is not Jewish, the first trip he made after winning the election was to the United States to visit the tomb of a rabbi in Brooklyn. People in Argentina are filled with uncertainty about what Javier Millet will be able to do while in office. He has promised to radically change Argentina's economy. And while many hope he'll be able to stabilize the economy, others fear the impact that his reforms will bring about. Millet will write a new chapter in Argentina's history. Many hope he will succeed where everybody else failed. Teresa Bo, Al Jazeera, Buenos Aires. This fighting has killed nearly 300 Palestinians in the past 24 hours in Gaza as the Palestinian armed group Hamas and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu exchanged threats. Israeli raids continue to cross the besieged territory on Sunday, including in northern Gaza, where entire neighbourhoods have been flattened by airstrikes and where ground troops that have been operating for more than six weeks continue to face heavy resistance from Hamas fighters. Gaza's Health Ministry spokesperson, Ashraf al-Kudra said in a telephone interview that 297 people were killed and more than 550 wounded in the past 24 hours, bringing the death toll since the start of the war to more than 18,000, the majority of them women and children. Neither the fascist enemy and its arrogant leadership nor its supporters can take their prisoners alive without an exchange and negotiation. And meeting the demands of the resistance, Hamas spokesman Abu Abeda said in a television broadcast. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, on his part, called on Hamas to surrender. It is the beginning of the end of Hamas. They say to the Hamas terrorists, it's over. Don't die for Sinwar. Surrender now, he said, referring to the Hamas chief in Gaza. Hamas earlier said Israel launched a series of very violent raids targeting the southern city of Khan Yunus and the road linking it to Rafah near the border with Egypt. And the Russian foreign minister says it is unacceptable that Israel is using Hamas's October 7 offensive as justification for a collective punishment of Palestinians in Gaza and has called for international monitoring of the situation on the ground in the besieged enclave. Speaking virtually at the Doha Forum on Sunday, Sergei Lavrov said the unprecedented attack by Hamas inside the Israeli territory did not happen in a vacuum. It was due to decades and decades of a blockade in Gaza and decades and decades of unfulfilled promises to Palestinians that they would have a state living side to side or side by side with Israel in security and good neighbourliness, he said. Addressing the Doha Forum, a two-day global meeting being held in the Qatari capital, Lavrov said the ongoing war in Gaza is about cancel culture, a recent phenomenon that refers to the mass withdrawal of support to public figures or celebrities who did things in the past that are more no more acceptable today. Whatever you don't like in the events which lead to a situation, you cancel. He says Moscow also condemned this week's US veto of a United Nations Security Council resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Dmitry Polyansky, 
Russia's representative at the UN said US diplomacy was leaving scorched earth in its wake. Shortly after Lavrov spoke at the Doha Forum, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu held a telephone call with Vladimir Putin, expressing his displeasure at Moscow's position against Israel at the UN and other global forums. The Prime Minister emphasised that any country that would suffer a criminal terrorist attack such as Israel experienced would act with no less force than the one Israel is using. Read a statement from Netanyahu's office. With more, we pick up this report. This phone call lasted around 50 minutes. It's the first time the two men have spoken since October 16th. Now, ru- relations between Russia and Israel are fraught, and this was reflected. In fact, uh, the Israeli Prem says he expressed his displeasure with certain statements made by Russian officials at the UN and other for- forums, he says, against Israel. He also strongly criticized the relationship between Russia and Iran and called it dangerous. And he also said that any country that suffered a terrorist attack, such as Israel did on October Seven would act with no less force uh, than Israel. Uh, but he was also appreciative of the fact that uh, Russian efforts to release an Israeli citizen with Russian citizenship and said that Israel will use all means, both politically and militarily, to release all the hostages. Now, talking about the hostages, the captives, he also told Russia to put pressure on the Red Cross to visit and provide medicines for the hostages held in Gaza. Now, that last bit's actually very interesting. Increase the Prime Minister is blaming the Red Cross for not doing enough for the captives in Gaza. This is popular because it deflects criticism of him. It also tallies with what the Bring Them Back campaign are saying. That's the umbrella organization that represents the captives still in Gaza. They've also been blaming uh, the Red Cross as well. How? However, I've spoken to the Red Cross. They can't act uh, unilaterally. They have to act as a result of humanitarian diplomacy. They can't simply walk into a war zone with intense bombardment and go and see these hostages. This has to happen as part of a wider agreement. But by blaming the Red Cross, it deflects criticism of Netanyahu himself. And we've seen this time and time again. Meanwhile, also at Doha and speaking on the war with Ukraine, Sergei Lavrov dubbed it a hybrid war on Russia launched by the United States and NATO, adding that the Ukraine conflict is also based on cancel culture. It is not a war of choice for Russia. It is an operation which we could not avoid, given the years and years of the US and NATO preparing Ukraine to be an instrument to undermine Russia's security, he said. Lavrov said the Ukrainian government had passed legislation intended to cancel everything Russian, including language, media, culture and education. This law is against the people who for generations have been living in eastern and southern Ukraine. The only thing the Western media is being encouraged to say is that Russia invaded Ukraine, he said. Meanwhile, Ukraine is facing a dwindling pool of new conscripts as its military is running out of career soldiers. The Washington Post has reported. The newspaper noted that Kiev has considerably tightened controls on its western borders as dozens of draft age men try to leave the country illegally by the day. In its article on Friday, the Washington Post observed that of this juncture, even more than bullets, Ukraine needs fighters, leading to a search for new ways to mobilise the population and stronger measures against draft dodgers. It quoted a 68th Brigade assault team leader who uses the call sign Dolphin as saying, honestly, we need more soldiers. The professional military personnel are running out. While tens of thousands of volunteers are still joining the military, many draft eligible Ukrainians are less than eager to fight for a military and national government that is v- 
viewed as rife with corruption and incompetence, the Washington Post claimed. The article described how draft dodgers are trying to sneak out of the country despite a ban placed by the government at the start of the conflict on men aged 18 to 60. Some are said to bribe officials to get a certificate of medical disability, while others attempt to forge documents on their own. Other men trying to avoid the mobilisation are attempting to cross the border via official checkpoints, hiding in secret compartments in vehicles, or even posing as clergy members and women. Andrei Demchenko, a spokesperson for Ukraine's State Border Guard Service, told the Washington Post that there were have been at least 825 cases where draft-age men have tried to bribe border guards since the start of hostilities last year in February. One anonymous draft dodger told reporters that the going rate of the Moldovan border is $300. Still, others are hiring professional guides, hoping to lead them through mountainous areas to Romanian soil. Some men are undertaking the risky trek in freezing temperatures on their own. The newspaper details adding that some have drowned or frozen to death in the process. Kiev's push to recruit more manpower follows the underwhelming summer counteroffensive, which, according to the Russian Defence Ministry estimates, has cost Kiev over 125,000 troops. And former US President Donald Trump has nudged ahead of Democratic rival Joe Biden in a hypothetical matchup between the two candidates most likely to contest in next year's presidential election, according to the findings of a national poll. The survey published on Saturday by the Wall Street Journal shows Biden with the lowest approval rating of his nearly three-year presidency, echoing similar polls that show the legally embattled Trump gaining ground in his bid to return to the Oval Office. According to the Wall Street Journal, Trump leads Biden by four percentage points, 47 to 43, which marks the first time the former president has established a lead in a head-to-head -head race against his successor in mainstream media polls. The survey also found that adding a third-party candidate, such as Robert F. Kennedy Jr., further tilts the race in favour by a margin of 37 to 31%. This data goes against a trend that says that RFK Jr., a Democrat, now running as an independent, would take votes from Trump. I argued that this would not be the case, particularly as Trump and Kennedy have no public relationship. Only those who know the story behind the story could possibly consider a connection. The average person in the street would not be able to see that connection. The Wall Street Journal poll confirms this, at least at this stage, 11 months out from the election. And the Wall Street Journal data shows that Biden, whose foreign policies have been brought into sharp focus conflict by the conflicts in the Middle East and Ukraine, has also seen his approval rating plummet in several key categories. Just 23% of voters polled said that, that Biden's policies have helped them personally, while 53% say they have been hurt by his presidential agenda. By comparison, roughly half of respondents said that Trump's policies personally helped them during his four-year stint in the Oval Office. Meanwhile, Biden's overall job performance polled at a record low for the Wall Street Journal at just 37%, while a record high of 61% view the president as unfavorable. The poll findings echo concerns in some Democratic circles about Biden's electability. The incumbent president would be 81 on election day and 86 by the time a second term might end. The 77-year-old Trump, though, has highlighted his opponent's advanced age and speculation about his deteriorating mental capacity. According to pollster Michael Bochian, Biden is falling short with groups who traditionally support the Democrats, including young Black and Latino voters. They are feeling economically stressed and challenged right now, Bochian told the Wall Street Journal, and they are not showing enthusiasm in the way they were in 2020 
2022. He added, however, that a lot can change between now and next November, and that re-establishment of the Biden electoral coalition is eminently doable. In a glimmer of hope for the Democrats, Trump's cascading legal woes appear to be his Achilles heel. The Wall Street Journal poll suggesting that Biden is viewed as the more honest candidate, if you can believe that, compared to Trump, whom a majority view as corrupt. A felony conviction for Trump, who faces 91 charges in four separate ongoing prosecutions, would dramatically shift the polling landscape and hand Biden a one-point advantage. The poll also says just one point. And coming up after the break, the president of the University of Pennsylvania has resigned after testimony to Congress. You are watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. You should hear what Ross Cameron is talking about. I see there's a new trend taking place, sweeping uh, the internet of what they're calling sort of technology naked walks, where you go for a walk without your iPhone, without uh, a headset, and just alone with your thoughts. Apparently some people are finding it quite emotionally taxing, but subsequently liberating. Uh, certainly I find if I get into a motor vehicle with a teenager, it's a matter of seconds uh, before there is a request for uh, usually the latest uh, Taylor Swift song or some other form of electronic stimulus. We are generation apparently trained uh, for a very short concentration span and a desperate need for um, digital company. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. On Friday, we reported on the story of Congresswoman Elise Stefanik grilling three Ivy League university presidents on whether the universities would act on anti-Semitic hate speech being used on campus. On Saturday, University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill resigned after giving controversial testimony before Congress in the past week. In that hearing, McGill and other university leaders, including the heads of Harvard and MIT, refused to say that calls for genocide against Jews violates university policy. The university leaders appear to have been coached not to condemn such racist calls against Jews. Critics say the testimony appeared to be supportive of Islamic extremist terrorist ideology against Jewish people. Let's now recap some of her testimony. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, 
does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm gonna give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. According to the Daily Pennsylvanian, the University Board of Trustees held an emergency gathering Thursday in the wake of resignation calls from dozens of government officials and Penn community members Pressure to resign followed the mounting scrutiny of McGill's context-dependent response to that question about whether calling for the genocide of Jewish people violates Penn's code of conduct from Rep. Elise Stefanik there, who referenced calls for intifada revolution among some protesters on campus as calls for genocide. Amid the uproar over the testimony, McGill attempted to dial back her statement in a video. However, it did little to quell the criticism. Big donors to the university have been complaining about the school's policies. And after McGill's testimony, a major donor, Ross Stevens, announced he was withdrawing a $100 million grant to the school. On Sunday on the show Full Measure with Cheryl Atkinson, the program followed the money and finally that the Muslim nation of Qatar has become the biggest foreign donor of American universities that have become a breeding ground for anti-Israeli sentiment. Qatar is where the leadership of the Islamic extremist terrorist group Hamas resides. Despite the controversy, McGill will reportedly stay on at the university as a tenured faculty member at Penn Carey Law. With more, let's cross to see how ABC Local News reported on the story. Penn officials released a letter today announcing that President Liz McGill has, quote, voluntarily tendered her resignation as president of the University of Pennsylvania. She will, however, remain a faculty member on campus. I think she could have said people wanted a better reaction or a better uh, response from some of the questions that they had asked her. In a statement regarding her decision to step down, McGill said, quote, it has been my privilege to serve as president of this remarkable institution. It has been an honor to work with our faculty, students, staff, alumni, and community members to advance Penn's vital missions, end quote. McGill has been under fire after a House hearing regarding anti-Semitism on college campuses. During that testimony, McGill did not explicitly say that calling for the genocide of Jews would violate university code on bullying or harassment. Pressure from donors was also a factor, one threatening to pull a $100 million donation if Liz McGill is not removed from her post. I think things have been like very tense. Uh, there have been like various like anti-Semitic um, like attacks, I think, that have happened. Um, one at our like Hillel Jewish Center um, and like a couple others across campus. And there's just been a lot of tension in general. And I love the school. Amy Gutman did a really great job. But as a Jew, it was scary being somewhere where I didn't feel supported. So I think this is a step in the right direction. Now, officials with the university are expected to announce plans for interim leadership in the coming days. We're live in University City, Brianna Gallagher, Channel 6, Action News.
Well, my new show on Saturday afternoon here on TNT Radio, I interviewed the screenwriter of Oliver Stone's documentary, JFK Revisited, Jim Eugenio. In that interview, which you'll be able to listen back to via our website or app, I asked Jim about the remaining JFK files to be released. I didn't expect, though, to be bringing you this next story so soon. And so it is that the Finnish Security Intelligence Service has declassified a 60-year-old file detailing Lee Harvey Oswald's mysterious visit to Helsinki in advance of his defection to the Soviet Union just over four years before he assassinated, or as we're told to believe, he assassinated John F. Kennedy in 1963. The day after Kennedy's murder, November 23, 1963, the SUPO composed a memorandum into Oswald's Helsinki trip that paints a unique if somewhat incomplete portrait of one of the most infamous characters of the 20th century. The newly declassified files show that the former US Marine Oswald, then just 19 years of age, checked into Helsinki's Hotel Tawny on October 10, 1959 for a five-night stay, but stayed for just two nights. Local outlet YLE News reported Saturday. Oswald's US passport application showed his stated intention for the trip was related to seeking education, either in Switzerland or at the University of Turku in Finland. However, Oswald's application to the university proved to be false ignited speculation as to his true motivations. Despite their efforts, Finnish authorities were unable to discover more information about his movements during this brief period. On October 12, 1959, Oswald applied for a USSR visa, the Soviet embassy in Helsinki, an application the Warren Commission would later note that was approved unusually quickly. Details about his arrival in Helsinki also remain somewhat of a mystery. Uncertainties as to his exact route have led to speculation he arrived in Finland from either England or Sweden. Supo investigation, the declassified files relieve, found it more likely that Oswald arrived via Stockholm either by plane or boat. The Finnish intelligence service also determined that while in Helsinki, Oswald had been apparently waiting for a visa. It also notes that after departing Helsinki, Oswald arrived in Moscow, where he almost immediately expressed an interest in obtaining Soviet citizenship. Oswald spent about two and a half years in the Soviet Union, mostly in Minsk, present-day Belarus, where he worked as a lathe operator in an electronics factory. A separate trove of documents into Kennedy's assassination released by the US government last year cited comment from former KGB officials who said that at no time was Oswald a KGB agent and that he was considered to be crazy and unpredictable during his Soviet years. The US government source added that Oswald was suffering from depression and homesickness for much of his time in Belarus. Oswald, who never formally renounced his US citizenship, returned to the US in the summer of 1962. He was shot dead while in police custody by Jack Ruby two days after Kennedy's assassination. And coming up after the news headlines, an emotional Queensland premier calls it quits. You are watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. All right, let's get this underway. For our first order of business, TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a quick look at your TNT headlines. Another pandemic leader has fallen in Australia, Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk throwing in the towel on Sunday. Our best days are well and truly ahead of us. After being kicked off Twitter nearly five years ago, Alex Jones has had his account reinstated. Washington's triggered outrage after being the only member of the UN Security Council to vote down calls for a ceasefire in Gaza again. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's heading back to the White House. The common housefly. Caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. 
Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Whoa. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNTradio.live. Welcome back. Emotional Anastasia Palaszczuk wiped away tears as she confirmed her retirement from politics, saying she felt now is the time for her to walk away. Queensland Premier made the shock announcement on Sunday. Following months of speculation, she was on her way out after nine years in power. She will officially step down as Premier next week and has thrown her support behind her deputy, Stephen Miles, to succeed her. Palaszczuk said she began considering retirement during a two-week holiday in Italy in September. If you were wondering, I turned my mind to this when I was trying to have a holiday with my partner. Palaszczuk told reporters Sunday, everyone deserves a break. Finally, my mind was made up at National Cabinet last week when I saw so many new faces. Renewal is a good thing. Palaszczuk became known as the accidental Premier after leading then a then seven-seat opposition to defeat Campbell Newman in 2015 after Labor served just one term in opposition. She won the next three elections, growing the Labor caucus to 52 people. The outgoing Premier was the first woman a leader in Australia to be re-elected. Palaszczuk succeeded her father, Henry, in the Western Brisbane seat of Inala in 2006. The outgoing Premier confirmed she would also be finishing up as an MP come the end of the month. Before she became a member of Queensland's Legislative Assembly, Palaszczuk was a political advisor and has led the Queensland branch of the Australian Labor Party since 2012. Palaszczuk became a contentious figure during the COVID-19 pandemic, where she implemented strict border controls, which ultimately led to low levels of the virus in the community for much of 2020 and 2021. She recorded high approval ratings amongst Queensland voters and defeated the coalition in the 2020 state election. Other contenders for the role include senior left faction member and health minister Shannon Fentiman. Treasurer Cameron Dick is also expected to put his name in the ring for the job. Palaszczuk's resignation leaves ACT Chief Minister Andrew Barr as the last pandemic leader to remain in power. In New South Wales, it was Gladys Berejiklian sensationally resigning as a result of a pending investigation by the state's corruption watchdog in September of 2021, with then Premier Treasurer Dominic Perrottet then voted in as the state's leader and oversaw the pandemic exit before the coalition lost government at this year's state election. Meanwhile, it was South Australian Premier Stephen Marshall resigning after the Liberal Party lost the election in March of 2022, Labor leader Peter Malinowskis was sworn in as Premier, and then Environment Minister David Spears took on the role as Opposition Leader. And the former WA Premier Mark McGowan shocked the country in March this year when he announced his departure. During his final press conference, he said the past three years had left him exhausted and extremely tired. Meanwhile, it was ex-Tasmania Premier Peter Gutwin gave a similar response after announcing his resignation in April of 2022, despite winning the state election just 11 months earlier. Gutwin said he had nothing left in the tank to give and admitted he could no longer give 110% as Premier. And former Northern Territory Chief Minister Michael Gunner resigned in May of 2022, following the birth of his second son in April of that year. I can no longer keep looking Territorians in the eye and say I can give 100% every day. And if I can't do that, I shouldn't be in the chair, he said. And two months later, he quit politics altogether, resigning as the MP for Fannie Bay. Most recently, former Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews announced his retirement from politics in September, with his deputy Jacinta Allen taking his place. He now is Palaszczuk's final press conference. As come January, she will be unemployed. I've done nearly nine years as Premier, three years before that as Leader of the Opposition. Before that, I was Transport Minister. I've dedicated my whole public, my whole life has been to community service. There's no greater honour. Do you have any idea of what you're going to take, what you're going to do now, or the next 
I have no job. <laughs> so in some form of capacity. Um, look around you, this state has so much to offer. It is, there's buildings everywhere, the transport systems, we're making things in Queensland. Like, honestly, our best days are ahead of us. And what has inspired me most is the people that I've met out and about, whether it's in Western Queensland with the wild dog fencing, in Maryborough where we're making trains, whether it's the free TAFE up in Cairns where I met uh, sorry, in Townsville where I met the nurses, the copper string line we're building underneath the Brisbane here, um, Cross River Rail, and of course the Olympics. It absolutely, the Olympics and Paralympics sets this state up for decades to come. We've had a very strong record of economic growth. Like I said, the economy is the you know, best in the nation. All these jobs, um, you know, coming into office when unemployment was, you know, so high and now it's so low. Um, the investment in our schools, uh, the free TAFE, um, skilling Queenslanders for work. Um, you know, we stopped sand mining in, uh, on Strabroke Island. Um, there has been so much that has happened, but for me, meeting the people of this state, and can I say to everyone, if you see me out and about, please come and say hello. Don't be a stranger. Luxury good maker Chanel's president of fashion, Bruno Pavlovsky, warned the fashion and luxury goods industry to prepare for a challenging year in the face of decelerating global economic growth. Speaking to the Financial Times on the sidelines of the company's Mater's Dart show held in Manchester, the UK this week, Pavlovsky emphasised the potential difficulties ahead for the industry. According to the man, he economic conditions are currently difficult everywhere in every single country, which is bound to affect the luxury sector. Luxury is not protected from the economy. I don't have a crystal ball, but the situation will be tougher than what we saw in 2023, he warned. Pavlovsky revealed that the brand recorded a drop in shop visits and purchases from for the first time and occasional buyers this year, liking the trend with high inflation in both the US and Europe and record youth unemployment in China. Chanel is not alone in its worry over the luxury industry's future, with companies from Louis Vuitton to Gucci reporting lower sales, growth or revenue declines amid inflation and recession worries. For instance, last month, Cartier-owned Richemont reported half-year results that showed a 3% drop in its luxury watch sales globally and a 17% decline in the Americas. Luxury is unfortunately not recession-proof, HSBC analysts wrote in a note to Bloomberg, predicting that the stellar growth in sales during the post-COVID-19 pandemic years is likely over. And the world's biggest diamond companies have made a series of increasingly desperate moves in an effort to stop this year's freefall in prices Bloomberg had reported recently. In 2023, prices for wholesale polished diamonds dropped by around 20%, while uncut stones have seen a decline of around 35%. South African diamond giant De Beers at a sale in Botswana back in late October reportedly nixed the usual obligations for buyers to make all of their contracted purchases at prices set by De Beers and removed any potential penalties. The company normally would have expected to make up to $500 million in sales, but the total amount for the sale was just $80 million at its most recent trade. De Beers' major rival, Russian state-run miner Al Rosa, halted all diamond sales in September for two months to prop up prices. The industry was a major beneficiary of the COVID-19 pandemic. When sales of gemstones saw a massive increase as shoppers stuck at home, turned to jewellery and other luxury purchases. However, demand for diamonds began to decline as soon as economies opened up again, leaving buyers stuck with swelling inventories. 
Drastic steps taken by the industry majors paid off, with prices rallying by up to 10%. And coming up after the break, we tackle the misinformation about misinformation. You're watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. William F. Buckley, who was a great conservative and a great Catholic philosopher, once said a lot of the problems with the church came from the popes. Because there were a lot of popes that had one foot in the city of man, one foot in the city of God. There's no greater example than the current pope. It is absolutely astounding that he's saying what he's saying about climate. It's the height of ignorance. Climate is not out of control. And as a matter of fact, if it was out of control, there's nothing man can do about it. This whole thing is a scam. And what is fascinating about the situation is he doesn't even seem to look at who he's in bed with with this. A lot of these people are sectarians. They don't have any appeal to a higher authority except for themselves as a higher authority. And they're out to play God. And he's actually putting himself in bed with that. And you want to know something? If you want to be the spiritual leader of 1.2 billion Catholics, you want to get involved in politics, and that's exactly what climate is, politics. You've got one foot in the city of man, one foot in the city of God. Not only does it rip you up, but it's going to rip your followers up. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. As a combat wounded veteran, I know how hard it is to come home and build a meaningful life. When I was in Iraq, our vehicle was hit. A rocket propelled grenade exploded right under my seat. Traumatic brain injury, a fractured pelvis, severe burns. They didn't think I was gonna make it. I had to learn to walk again and live with the scars, both visible and invisible. DAV helps veterans like LaToya get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. With DAV on my side, I was able to pursue my dreams. If my story can touch a heart, it can change a life. My victory is overcoming my wounds so I can help other veterans. LaToya Lucas, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. TNT. Welcome back to Compass. Hunter Biden, son of U.S. President Joe Biden, has raised his own doubts about Elon Musk's intellectual acumen, claiming the billionaire lacks regard for U.S. democracy and freedoms. Biden also accused Musk of spreading disinformation about his personal life and business dealings. These comments followed one day after the U.S. Department of Justice filed nine new tax-related charges against Biden, alleging that he has led an extravagant lifestyle while evading taxes. In an interview with musician-turned-podcaster Moby, published Friday, Biden expressed concern that criticisms from right-wing detractors could jeopardise his safety, citing a past attack on Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, where the assailant mentioned Biden as a potential target. Biden asserted that figures like Musk are amplifying narratives damaging to his reputation. One thing about Elon Musk that I'm certain of is there's another very damaged human being, the president's son told Moby, calling the billionaire the dumbest smart person I think that the world has ever known. The attorney by profession went on to say that Elon Musk doesn't care about the First Amendment. Elon Musk doesn't care about democracy. Elon Musk doesn't care about our freedom to vote. 
Responding to these remarks on X that same day, the entrepreneur replied, exactly what misinformation is he talking about? Musk quipped, the dude made so many videos of himself doing crime that he should get an award for cinematography. An apparent reference to the multiple videos and photos of Hunter that have emerged over the past years, which depict him spending time with prostitutes and smoking crack cocaine. And that's just some of it. Meanwhile, court documents suggest that the younger Biden's son was engaged in a four-year scheme to not pay at least $1.4 million in self-assessed federal taxes he owed for tax years 2016 through 2019. Press release emphasised that his income would have allowed him to pay his taxes, but the, he had allegedly squandered the money on drugs, escorts and girlfriends, luxury hotels and rental properties, among other things. Charges include three felony and six misdemeanor tax offences, potentially leading to a maximum sentence of 17 years if convicted on all counts. Misinformation, which is the follow-on from fact-checking introduced after Hillary Clinton faced an uphill battle against Donald Trump in the lead-up to the 2016 election and funded by friends of Hillary Clinton, including George Soros's Open Societies, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Pointer Institute. But misinformation works both ways, with the government expert at controlling the narrative and doubling down long after being caught out at getting things wrong. Only last week in Australia, the Prime Minister apologised for the drug thalidomide, 60 years after children were born with severe birth defects after the drug was used to prevent morning sickness. The misinformation wars began with the Trump presidency and continued with the COVID narrative. When your local doctor is silenced by a bureaucrat and withdrawn from the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship, you know you are entering a new level of misinformation. Did doctors lose their qualification and intelligence where suddenly uneducated and unqualified public servants suddenly picked up exactly what the doctors lost? Don't forget Queensland Chief Health Officer Jeanette Young announcing a $13,000 fine and six months in prison for a doctor prescribing hydroxychloroquine in April of 2020, eight months before a vaccine even made it to Australia. Here is former New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern bemoaning the need for the establishment's truth to be the truth in this speech to the UN. This week we launched an initiative alongside companies and non-profits to help improve research and understanding of how a person's online experiences are curated by automated processes. This will also be important in understanding more about mis- and disinformation online, a challenge that we must as leaders address. As leaders we're rightly concerned that even the most light-touch approaches to disinformation could be misinterpreted as being hostile to the values of free speech that we value so highly. But while I cannot tell you today what the answer is to this challenge, I can say with complete certainty that we cannot ignore it. To do so poses an equal threat to the norms we all value. After all, how do you successfully end a war if people are led to believe the reason for its existence is not only legal but noble? How do you tackle climate change if people do not believe it exists? How do you ensure the human rights of others are upheld when they are subjected to hateful and dangerous rhetoric and ideology? The weapons may be different, but the goals of those who perpetuate them is often the same, to cause chaos and reduce the ability of others to defend themselves. But we have an opportunity here to ensure that these particular weapons of war do not become an established part of warfare. We are facing many battles on many fronts, but there is cause for optimism. 
because for every new weapon we face, there is a new tool to overcome it. For every attempt to push the world into chaos is a collective conviction to bring us back to order. We have the means. We just need the collective will. Just how bad is this split in society whereby those who rejected the government's narrative were punished severely and to this day still suffering exclusion and name-calling, even by government leaders? The Australian Treasurer Jim Chalmers called such people cookers in Parliament. Meanwhile, comedian Jim Brewer has seen his popularity skyrocket in the past two years. Here he is speaking to Glenn Beck about what he says is unforgivable and what might well be coming. You had mayors? Despicable. Disgusting. They're not human. They're disgusting. And they should be held accountable. All of them. Every single last one of them. Every mayor, every governor that shamed you, terrorized you, tore your family apart, made you lose your job, divided everybody. That was the most disgusting display of humanity. And these are the people that are controlling my life and your life that they're taking my money from and doing whatever mm -hmm. they want with it. I don't have a choice where my taxes go. That time... That's how I saw it. I saw it as a complete takeover. And in, in my own house, you know, these kids are all indoctrinated. So the kids are like, dad's crazy. Mm -hmm. Hey, man, your father's putting up. And I, I saw what they were going through. I had nieces. You know, I had my daughter come up to me and a niece that I love said, uh, dad, is everything cool because... Everyone thinks you're, you know, mm -hmm. you're making wacky videos. I felt we're at war. A hundred percent. This is war, however you want to describe it. It's a war on your common sense. It's a war on the control of your life. It's the war on your spirituality. It's the war of your conscience and your mind. And it's not a game. It's real. Unfortunately, humanity doesn't believe that evil exists, and boy, does it exist. Does. And you'd be horrified when you realize where they're all located. And I'm not sure some people can handle that, but I think the ones that can are very ready. Very ready. They're done. Meanwhile, the indoctrination system is in full flight. Here is Canada's Deputy Prime Minister delivering a speech or... Is it a sermon to a graduating class about the once in six generation inflection point in human history caused by an invisible globalist made problem? Our time of tranquility is over and we are living in an age of change. We're living through what President Biden on a visit to my country in March called an inflection point. A time of transformation, he said, that comes once every five or six generations. Now, like it or not, you are graduating into that inflection point. What is this inflection point? What is this upheaval which is going to the roots of humanity itself? There are many ways to describe this transformational moment, but I think they all come down to one fundamental question. Does capitalist democracy still work? That's the question being posed around kitchen tables in my country and this one 
as parents wonder if our children can count on capitalist democracy's essential promise of a future more prosperous than our present? It is the question being posed by our shrinking glaciers and our warming oceans, which are asking us, wordlessly but emphatically, if democratic societies can rise to the existential challenge of climate change. Truly impressive there. That's the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada doing exactly the opposite of what Javier Malay has been elected for, which is to go against the socialist system that has resulted in 140% inflation, 133% interest rates in Argentina. But meanwhile, Canada thinks that that's the way to go at what that was, a graduation ceremony, no wonder. Young people are confused today. Meanwhile, Dr. Michael Macari is a professor and surgeon at Johns, Hos Johns Hopkins Hospital. He called out the US government directly for being the lead architect of misinformation in an open hearing alongside other doctors. His testimony is breathtaking. The greatest perpetrator of misinformation during the pandemic has been the United States government. Misinformation that COVID was spread through surface transmission, that vaccinated immunity was far greater than natural immunity, that masks were effective. Now we have the definitive Cochrane review. What do you do with that review? Cochrane is the most authoritative evidence body in all of medicine and has been for decades. Do you just ignore it, not talk about it? That myocarditis was more common after the infection than the vaccine, not true. It's four to 28 times more common after the the vaccine, that young people benefit from a booster, misinformation. Our two top experts on vaccines quit the FDA in protest over this particular issue, pushing boosters in young, healthy people. The data was never there. That's why the CDC never disclosed hospitalization rates among boosted Americans under age 50. The vaccine mandates would increase vaccination rates. The George uh, Mason University study shows it didn't. It did one thing. It created never vaxxers. Over and over again, we've seen something that goes far beyond using your best judgment with the information at hand. We've seen something which is unforgivable, and that is the weaponization of medical research itself. The C CDC putting out their own shoddy studies, like their own study on natural immunity, looking at one state for two months, when they had data for years on all 50 states. Why did they only report that one sliver of data? Why did they salami slice the giant database? Because it gave them the result they wanted. Same with masking study. Well, the data has now caught up in giant systematic reviews, and the uh, public health officials were intellectually dishonest. They lied to the American people. Extraordinary testimony there. It is becoming abundantly clear that we were not told the truth about the origins of COVID, weren't told the truth about non-vaccine COVID treatments, nor COVID vaccine flaws and weaknesses by those in authority. The question remains is, can we therefore believe them ever again? It appears the government excludes themselves from this and the media turns their head the other way. And so it seems to the masses. However, as George W. Bush attempted to say, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. The government, of course, has no shame. Journalist Alex Newman compares COVID vaccine booster uptakes decline, along with the public's reluctance to contribute more money to line the pockets of climate change policymakers. Here he is speaking to Tom Nelson 
on his podcast. Well, you think though that around the world, the average voter has almost no stomach to pay for climate scam policies? There's no question, Tom. Uh, there, there was a poll released earlier this year in America. I think it was in the spring. Um, it was an AP NORC poll. And um, first they asked, they did it the proper way, right? First they asked, you know, do you believe in climate change, right? Uh, and you know, normal people, I would say, well, of course, climate change. Climate has always changed, right? When has climate not changed? And, you know, when you tell me that, then we know. Uh, so do you believe in climate change? And most people say, yes, I believe in climate change. Then they asked the follow-up question. If you believe in climate change, do you believe that humans are causing it? And that's when you get actually less than half of the population believes that human emissions are causing climate change. Then they asked another question, which was fascinating. Would you be willing to pay even one additional dollar on your electric bill to fight climate change? And almost nobody said yes, including the people who believe the climate change narrative. Uh, and that's the case around the world, right? I mean, and that's Americans who are, by all standards around the world, very, very wealthy still, right? We, we have color TVs, air conditioning. The fact that Americans who believe in the man-made global warming hoax would not be willing to pay one single dollar each month to fight climate change. You know, what about some African or somebody in you know Southeast Asia who's struggling to put food on the table. Uh, no, they're not going to be willing to pay an extra dollar. No, they're not going to be willing to uh, you know prevent development and electrification in their country to prevent climate change. So th they're really beating a dead horse now. And so they're, they're actually coming back with another approach. And I've, I've seen this really come to the fore over the last few days, Tom, where they're now trying to say climate change is actually a health emergency. And so, you know, we got to deal with it from that approach. Maybe we'll do what we did with COVID for climate. People are not buying this stuff anymore. I don't think they're going to succeed on that front either. They've kind of backed themselves into a corner now with this climate hoax. Uh, I think they're desperately searching for new boogeymen that might be more frightening. Uh, I heard somebody at the World Economic Forum recently say, that, like, maybe we need a water crisis to convince people to give up their freedom. So, you know, they're, they're going to have to go back to the drawing board, I suspect. I don't think public health and I don't think climate change is going to do it uh, in terms of convincing people to surrender more freedom and more money. When this misinformation war began, or an information war, depending on which way you see it, we did not see the players we see today. We did not see six state premiers of Australia all resigning within two years of each other. We did not predict the rise of Javier Malay or the return of Geert Wilders or Donald Trump, despite 90 criminal charges against him, out polling Joe Biden a year out from the US election. Nor did we expect any nations to withdraw from the WHO's international health regulations, nor did we expect the World Economic Forum to distance itself from Yuval Harari, nor did we expect global leaders to appeal to the collective after creating a COVID-era world dictatorship. But here we are. It is a great start to the week in the war for the world. Government for the people is once again a real chance of re-emergence. And in the sports world, Grant Hackett's 22-year reign as swimming's 800-metre king is over. The Australian has been wiped from the record books after Daniel Whiffen smashed swimming's oldest world record at the European Short Course Championships in Romania on Monday. Hackett's seemingly immortal record had survived 15 years after he blew the world away with a freakish swim at the 2008 Victorian Championships just a few weeks before the Beijing Olympics. But the record wasn't just broken, it was completely annihilated by the Irish swimmer who shaved just under three seconds off Hackett's time, touching the wall in 7 minutes 20.46 to take the gold medal. What 
indeed is that a huge effort for sport the oldest record 22 years in swimming wiped away by new champion 22 year old daniel whiffen well that concludes today's edition up next is chris smith this is jason olborn for compass on tnt radio <laughs>